So I'm sitting here with Garnet Dupuis. He's an amazing inventor, thinker, and also, I would say, an extremely conscious and aware person who has done a lot of work on himself and learning different practices. He's able to bridge technology, science, metaphysics, spirituality, all of those, and bring them on our level. So he's done a lot of different things on his career in terms of technology products and you would say also different kind of entertaining experiences one can have, which are maybe beyond just entertainment. And the latest thing that he's been working on is something that helps people to access something he calls the first language. And throughout history, humans have used different means through which they are trying to achieve higher states of consciousness or different ways of looking at things, even ecstasy, which actually as a term means out of ordinary, out of balance, out of it's... out of stasis, out of a state. And there's different states of the mind, anything from the wakeful state up to the dream state and everything in between. And I'm very honored and intrigued to hear how he's going to tackle these things, talk about how technology and new ways of inducing these states in the brain can, in modern ways, help us achieve something that humans have tried to achieve through drumming, through fasting, through mm. sleep deprivation, through molecular interventions, plants, movement. There's so many different ways the real masters of yoga and Zen Buddhist masters in terms of meditation, or if you even take something like Shaolin Kung Fu, where we see this physical feat, but at the same time, when they are able to achieve great physical feats, to be able to do that in terms of concentration, they also have to work on the opposite, which is meditation and I would say altered states, mm. which interestingly to me are kind of part of the human story and, and progress is like we're like constantly pushing the envelope of our mm -hmm. you could say like just the basic homeostasis or if you think of resilience of the body it requires that you push the boundaries I would say the resilience of the mind also requires us to expand the uh, spectrum or the envelope of uh, mm -hmm. possible states so with that introduction Thank you very much for taking the time to sit with me and have a conversation. I can say thank you. You've been doing more than your homework. That's a pretty hefty introduction. I'm not quite sure what we can pick up, but uh, sincerely thank you. I'm in my life, like many of us, I've come to value the experience of learning. I don't know if it's above all else, but it's certainly at the very peak of reward. and. Throughout time, it became more and more obvious to me that learning was always best when it was shared. And the chance to sit with you, because I respect you, and both of us knowing we're not quite sure what we're going to talk about, we're, but we're very sure that it's going to be good, to me is that quality that keeps the learning alive. The risk of being open, the risk of being in the moment, and the risk of saying what you believe to be true to the best of your ability. To me, this is a unique opportunity. 
mm. and it's honestly appreciated. Yeah. So let's start from just a basic overview of your life. You're much <laughs> older than a lot of us. In <laughs> almost everybody is what I find out. <laughs> almost everybody in the health and wellness space. So you have yeah. seen a lot of things. It's know. an advantage. Yeah. Okay. To, to put chronology on it, uh, this is July right now. In a couple of months, I'm 74. And I entered university as a French-Canadian farm boy. Nobody in my family traveled much. Nobody ever went to school beyond basic schooling. And entering the university system in Canada, but right near the American border at the end of the 60s, was a momentous period. It really is, you might try to imagine, like I can try to imagine a generation before me, but it's like a movie in my mind. I don't really know the feeling. And the feeling at that time was one of liberated adventure, liberated learning. And to me that, okay, also filled with romanticism, idealism, naivete, all of that. But that period remains precious for me, not because of the outcomes, not because the two pills that, not really a pill, but the two pills that changed everything at that time, the birth control pill and LSD. When you put those two things together with great music, perhaps you can imagine the sense of liberation. I thought it was painkillers that changed society. No, not, not the one I was involved in. <laughs> not that one. It's interesting, like during that time, parastamol was also invented, and it's only recently they realized that it's also dampening our emotions, that there's, it's not just a physical pain that is being reduced, yeah. but it's also, yeah. also like uh, just evening out the emotions. And what you're speaking about is maybe even heightening emotions. It was honestly an exciting time. And that was, for me, over 50 years ago, 53 years ago. And I reflect back on it now. Frankly, a lot of what I experience now or have been experiencing in this period, it's a kind of a sequel to the movie because of the excitement of psychedelics. There was no social media. So when you travel, like the two weeks after I finished my degree in this university in Canada, I was living in Isfahan, Iran. And a year after that, I'm in northern India in an ashram with my guru to understand what it was like then because the exploration was also still physical. It wasn't just a psychic exploration. When you would go off and travel, a letter would take weeks. And we still had at that time what we call the rainbow route. You could get as far as Istanbul and collect around and try to find somebody with the very famous VW van get up to 10 people, share the gas, and from there, west to east through Turkey, down into northern Iran, through Tabriz, maybe Tehran, Isfahan, cross over into Afghanistan, maybe spend a few months there because you could live for nothing. And in those days, a room, food, and all the hashish you could ever imagine. And then off through Pakistan into northern India and up Nepal into Kathmandu. And... In those times, I guess it, we didn't have internet, so you couldn't really have social media. Like Nothing. When you left, like your You're gone. friends, family, like you, You're gone. they didn't know what's going to happen. No, a, a long distance phone call from those areas, you'd have to go into, usually uh, try to find a large hotel. You'd book a long distance call. They try to put it through. Come, we have the call. 
uh, I'm okay. I have to be careful not to romanticize the period, but the freedom was called the counterculture. And this is one of my themes that maybe we can talk about today. Also the beat culture. Oh, beat was before the beatniks. We won't go there, but briefly, the name beatnik comes from two things joined together, Cold War period. One was the suppression of the Cold War and this generation living under it felt beat down, trodden, beat down. But there was also the infiltration of spoken word and jazz and black culture into this post-war. So there was a beat, beat down, but there's also a beat. And Nick comes from Sputnik. The Russians beat the U.S. into the space race. So the first satellite is Sputnik. So that group became the beat Nicks. That's before the hippie thing. I guess the point I'm dancing around, if there is a point, is the way that contemporary culture shapes a person's point of view. Right. And right now, you and I have a distance of some three decades or more in age. And then now at your age, there's a generation under you, let's say 20 years younger, that are just hitting their 20s. And watching and seeing how much culture can change within a generation, or does it require a change of generation to change a culture? So we'll take a big risk and talk about Western culture. It's not one thing. We're here right now in Estonia, and then there's Europe, and then there's North America, and, and so on. So let's pretend that it's Western culture is one thing. It's not. What do you think? Do you think cultures can really pivot within a generation? Can people change their mind halfway through? Or does it require a bump from the next generation for change? What I do you think, think it requires some kind of external event. Okay. A, a big change, cataclysmic change in mm -hmm. society. It can be war, like the Vietnam War, I think was one of the things that really fueled the the whole rainbow culture. And interest, sure. you were kind of part of that yeah. in a sense. Maybe I need to ask you because you went sure. through that cycle. What what I see right now in my lifetime, it's a good question if there has been an event like that that would put things into motion. But I see that the younger generation, I, I guess it required like a shift in generation for sure for some of the things of the past generation to dilute. An example would be our parents in, of my generation, they were very much into alcohol yes. and smoking cigarettes yes. and uh, all of that. Still having this idea of getting family quite early, mm -hmm. while this generation that I'm in and the one that is now a couple of decades younger than me, mm -hmm. for them, that's not the way how they spend their time. I personally grew up not in one-way media, but two-way media. I learned programming when I was 13, and very quickly when I was 14, 15, 16, I was interacting with people, not on the internet, but through bulletin board systems. Mm -hmm. I was running one of them as well, mm -hmm. kind of the early social media, yeah. social technologies. I was first users on social media platforms mm -hmm. like Twitter and Facebook. And it's YouTube. crazy, wow. And it's like the reason why I'm very well versed on it and maybe not the older generation was because I was not preoccupied with life. Like often when you grow up, you get preoccupied with a lot of things. 
So I'm asking myself, do I have the time to open-mindedly look at what the young generation is doing? Like, I'm not even on TikTok. Mm-hmm. It's like struggle to just have the time to like figure that platform out. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you're growing up and you have a lot of time, you spend doing things and whatever your peers are interested in and that sure. kind of changes things as well. Mm-hmm. But I would say what can change midway culture is like something that really pushes ideology or yeah. day-to-day life into a new direction in the midst of it. Well, the counterculture of that era beginning in say 65 through 1980, that's expanding it, but certainly 10 years, 65 to 75, it was called the counterculture because it was fundamentally a reaction against the rise of institutionalism and the rise of corporations and the rise of new technologies. So there's perhaps a parallel now. At that time, if I, and I've thought about this, what one word could try to capture the point of view that shifted in what I'll call the hippie culture, which is better to put as the human potential movement. That's a derivative of that human potential. It's, and I think the word natural was really, was planted and which remains with us today. The idea that the foods at the time, the grocery store, I grew up a farmer and yet a lot of our vegetables were from cans because it was considered vogue. It was considered modern and preferred the idea of going to an automatic washer. I remember us getting our first telephone in in the area, in the farm. I remember getting the first TV. And that surge of institutionalized personal technology was pushed against in the counter culture. The idea of, I don't want to work in a corporation. I don't want to have to wear a suit. I'm not aspiring towards an automatic washer, an automatic dryer, which is really the, was the salvation of the earlier generation because they had so much damn manual work all the time. Yeah. So frozen foods and yes. all the modern. The famous TV table. Yeah. That basically gave so much more time for people. Interestingly, if you think about what would attribute to the extension of lifespan, mm-hmm. like the average lifespan expectancy, now it's like over 80 years average globally. Sure. In, sure. in US it's 75 and declining. Yeah, it's that's of, why I'm out of the US it's the, in Thailand. It's the outlier. So we would easily think that the jump from average life expectancy of 1800s uh, from 45 to 85 happened because of medical technology. But how much would you think it was attributed to medical technology versus hygiene versus- I think it's uh, sanitation hygiene. And the reduced exposure to the elements. Yeah, that's pretty much the stuff that comes out. Of course, if you get into an accident, we can fix you in ways yes. that couldn't in the past. And thank you for that. But in the end, the fact that we understand hygiene and people are not dying of infections, secondary infections. That's right. Of whatever you're like mm-hmm. going through that we invented antibiotics. Although nowadays it's almost like a demon, this th- word yeah. antibiotics, but it was a life Say It saved more. lives everywhere. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Oh. I, have, I have a question for you. Let's play the imagination game. I'd like you to imagine out loud what it must have been like for to be a hippie. What do you think it must have been like? 1970. My first Im- image is freedom. Freedom. And now I see an association with American freedoms. I see a lot of the hippie movement, although it was also in Europe. It was sure. quite fueled by Vietnam War and yes. America having its own 
foreign problems uh-huh. and the youth being against it. It's almost like the lockdowns of our time or pandemic in a sense, like people getting tired of like uh-huh. the policies. And then psychedelics, Timothy Leary, all of these pioneers who were calling for the expansion of the mind. And I would say probably the interest of the Orient as well. Like you went with that. Like why, I want to ask you, why was there such a interest in the Orient and in the exotic as far away from your own culture? I can't pretend to speak for the generation. I'll just speak for myself. It's probably related. I don't know if it's representative, but I grew up a Roman Catholic, French, Canadian, English province, and Catholicism at that time had still a sense of tradition, the sacred and the mysterious, and I loved that feeling, the feeling of the big church and the solemn chanting in Latin and the incense. It was so beautiful. But beyond that small context, the rest of the culture didn't seem to offer that. And it was the beginning at the university level, there'd be a couple of very small little occult bookstores. And you could, half a block away, you knew that you're getting close because the incense was so strong at the time. You're burning this stuff like crazy. And you get in and there's only three bookshelves. There were no books. Like we have now bazillion books. Well, you can just download digital, boom, you get it. So there was almost no reference to anything beyond confined religion that served as any authority, served as any access. So bit by bit, you hear, and some of the first uh, gurus, good or bad, were making their way over. The Beatles in the 60s, Maharishi Mashyogi and Sri Aurobindo. And I, I was convinced that there was a resource there that was precious, that was lacking in Western culture. I didn't find myself that Western mysticism was impossible to find at the time. I decided I will go there. And I still remember the very first night I was in this big ashram in northern India and I'd been initiated and I had this old army war surplus mummy sleeping bag that weighed about 10 kilos, right? And I'm laying there with my head exposed looking out at the stars and the foothills of the Himalayas, and I felt like I had come, like I had restarted my life again, that I had been waiting for this. It's not so much that I came home to the place, but I came home to the uh, opportunity to explore consciousness again with guidance. It was, and this has been my whole life, it's always been about consciousness and those things associated, using consciousness for good, and helping others if possible. Uh, it's always been there. And I don't know if that's the result of the culture of the time or just my personality or probably a combination. So when I reflect back, even the term the human potential movement to me is, again, maybe it's cultural. It's a, I don't know, it's a mm-hmm. more warm term that the human potential, yet I believe it's the same fundamental urge, but the attitude, Now it seems most of the authority is being derived from expanding science. A lot of biohacking is science-related, looking at all sorts of physical elements and the metrics of certain processes. That didn't exist then. The science was nowhere near any kind of explanation, but the, the, the Asian spiritual traditions really seem to have 
uh, their handle on it, yogic pranayama techniques. And you know, I studied it after my Indian guru with a, a Korean Taoist teacher for 10, 12 years and the past 25 under a Eastern Tibetan Dzogchen teacher. And I respect these traditions a lot. I think, unfortunately, they're failing now because contemporary culture has changed so much that the effort, the discipline, the commitment, the time required to mature in these disciplines, in these methods, is absent. It's one of the reasons why I have my focus now. I try to be a good man. I try to do a good thing. And I've had very rich psychedelic experiences, never a bad experience, very lucky. I'm not much involved in it now. I still work with my practices, my methods. And now with evolving technology, I have a potent interest in biophysical psychoactive agents and methods. Right. When you were speaking about seeking some kind of mysticism, mm -hmm. which was lacking in the West, and you went to the East mm -hmm. seeking for it, and you found it there, and you spoke about the bookshelves, it reminds me of the fact that the hippie movement was fueling a lot of this cultish behavior almost. Yes. But just a few translated books, like yeah. only a few Vedic texts were translated to English. Very few. The translations became the representative of yes. Western understanding of the Eastern yeah. techniques and philosophies. For example, chakras came from... <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. yeah, chakras came from one translation of a specific Vedic text, mm -hmm. not all of them. Mm -hmm. So that gave it the seven chakras, but also, I mean, there's different interpretation. Like, oh, many. That was the S Serpent Power by Woodruff, I think. Correct. Yeah. So the Serpent Power book, that also put the colors into chakras. Yeah. So the rainbow movement put the rainbow colors into chakras. The old, original yes. Vedic texts don't have the colors. No, 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 it varies dramatically. I think it was Christopher Isherwood, maybe that's wrong. 1973, a new age book. He's the, that was the first appearance of the rainbow sequence. Was it like Boot Wharf or something? No, no, he didn't rainbow it. It was the 73 text. Woodruff, I'm aware of those texts. It's a kind of a hobby interest of mine because of all the ways things got screwed up, like Evan Wentz in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, how massively misunderstood that was. And Jung's forward was like silliness that... Even uh, Darwin's text... And on and on. Uh, uh, so one thing that I want to say please. about that is theosophists also. Oh boy, a lot of damage. Like Charles Liebe, other uh, uh, Madame Blavatsky with Blavatsky's. We go into the bookshop and there was almost nothing there, but there was Blavatsky's and then uh, Bailey's, and you know you say, oh, this is going to be great, and they're impenetrable. They were occultists. They weren't practitioners. They were mostly interested in mediumship at the time and psychic healing, and they just massacred. But the power and the potency of their influence... It's huge. For example, they wrote a book called Chakras. Yes. And that was a channel download. It was a theosophist, yeah. like just like visionary interpretation of imagine what it might be. Correct. And that influenced a lot of our understanding of chakras. Yeah, absolutely. The chakras, oh, come on, what's his name? Anyway, I'm aware. I've, because in the beginning, it seemed to be resourceful. And one of the reasons why I did my best to travel to what I would call more original teachers in the original culture was 
One is to get credible guidance, and the other was to not get lost in all this gobbledygook that was splattering around. And sometimes when I look now, I'm afraid of the popularization, oversimplification, patchwork, composite processes that are being put out now with trademarks and everything with the expectation that if you just do this, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, it's going to happen. I have some sensitive concern that some people may be disappointed and at a certain point and maybe then swing back to a fundamentalist view. I'm not sure, but right now it seems almost out of control with commercialism. There's one thing that also came to me now that there was the whole thing about Tantra and this like oh, sexual boy. freedom and all of that. And it was like one Kundalini text that was translated to English yep. that influenced a lot of that thinking. And there was this American guy who learned yoga from yes. uh, an Indian immigrant. And then he changed his name. He, uh, yeah, I, and, the, and he, he became the embodiment of the Neo-Tantra movement, yep. mixing up his own sexual fantasies with Absolutely. these things. And that's what people think Tantra is. And very interestingly, how impactful that is, is that in Estonia, for example, this Neotantra is huge. And there's some people who were organizing these things and they went to India, just like you went, just yeah. to learn things. And they ended up in a Tantra ashram. And yeah. when they went there after two weeks, they realized they've been, it was completely different from what they thought Tantra is. Yes. And when they came back, they stopped organizing yes. some of the Tantra things because they realized they had misunderstood the whole thing. Very like much so. And there's Christopher Wallace, who is an academic who's written a huge book called uh, Tantra Illuminated. Mm -hmm. And in that book, there's only one page about sex. And that one page yes. is the story of how Americans misunderstood. <laughs> Ooh, uh, to me, Tantra is probably the most important, uh, most important, how should I know? I think it's incredibly important in the evolution of spiritual practice. The concept of Tantra really means a continuum that coming out of the Brahmin castes and the Vedics, that it was a, a democratization of spiritual process, that you didn't have to be in any particular caste, that all experience had the potential of being a vehicle for awareness, and the physical and emotional and psychological and spiritual men and women, to me, that is still looming over us in our Western culture because of the materialism that we're in right now and the separation of brain and mind. I think Tantra is a brilliant appreciation of the continuum of opportunity. Even the concept of separating physical from non-physical, all of this, I think it gets in our way. I think inside, outside gets in our way. I think big and small, near and far, all these things get in our way. One thing that I want to touch base on is that you said that this Oriental Buddhism and all that, it's, yeah. it's no longer as trendy because it requires so much dedication and yes, time. That's my opinion. And Western, they want to have things fast food, fast everything. Like mm -hmm. even a podcast like this is better split up into <laughs> 30 For example, clips, more likely to get views than a yeah. long form format. But in the end, I see that psychedelics are now so popular because yes. people are seeking 
quick answers also. Like mm-hmm. they don't want to put the time in meditation. They don't want to do the breath work hours every day. They don't want to well, do the fasts. So what they do is they just go to a ceremony and they think they got it all. And mm-hmm. I guess that's also what happened when hippies went to India with their LSD and they showed that to the gurus there and they were like, yeah, it opens up a little bit, but this is not the answer. Yeah, so th- this is either a convenient view or a matured view or a mistaken view. What? Let's talk about it, but I'll ask you the question first. What do you think is the reasonable style of vehicle for people now to expand their consciousness? Your generation went to India. My generation is deeply intrigued about Amazon yes. and, and the jungles. Okay. So Fortune 500 companies or startup companies, yep. executives, they go to the Amazon to expand their minds with ayahuasca or they... Yeah. I think it's in the footsteps of not really people like William Burroughs and Aldous Huxley and not even Timothy Leary, but it's more like in the footsteps of... Terence McKenna and Dennis McKenna and the way they popularized these things more like in the 80s. And uh I'm born in early 80s. Okay. So I grew up like I'm, it's actually quite rare, not common for my generation. Sure. That I got exposed to Terence McKenna's thinking Mm -hmm. when I was like my early teens. Okay. That's unusual. And uh, so I stumbled upon his material on the internet Mm. and I got intrigued about his view because at that time the drug education was pretty much like you take, you smoke weed and next thing you take LSD and then you jump from a building. A building. Yes. And that was what was pushed on people. And to me, it didn't make any sense when I was listening to Terrence McKenna and he explaining the indigenous ways of use and sure. explaining the travels and the exploration that they did when they went to the Amazon, like discovering something that no one had basically really written much about. Mm-hmm. And they described also new methods, even like growing mushrooms, sure. magic mushrooms, which was not known how to cultivate them. Mm-hmm. Now it is like a huge industry and it's becoming legalized for therapeutic use, but they influenced a lot during that times. And when I was growing up, I, I realized that if I'm going to seek for a mystical experience. Mm-hmm. It is not by going to a church. It's not by going to India. It's mm-hmm. going to be that I go to the jungle. Mm. And I went to the jungle in my late 20s. And that was huge shift. And I my first exposure to them was with the Shiva Indians. And I'm very grateful for that because that was before Joe Rogan podcast and all of these were sure. like mass marketing DMT trips to people. Mm-hmm. I went there before landing pages, before Western. I remember there was one Western gringo shaman mm-hmm. and he was a bit of a crazy guy. And <laughs> that was all that I, yeah. I witnessed in Iquitos. I mean, it was full of cowboys even mm-hmm. that time, mm-hmm. but uh, there was a lot of genuinity in it. Many of the things that people now speak about on podcasts and the retreat centers didn't mm-hmm. exist, any of it. Sure. I was exposed to the real deal in a sense, mm-hmm. in a very uncommercial setting. 
And I'm very grateful for that. Also that I experienced it that way because I have not very deep respect to generational mm-hmm. knowledge that is, yeah. I, I take it very seriously. So I'm more of a traditionalist in yes. that sense. Mm-hmm. And I've been always very careful in what I put into my body. So I never, I've never tried uh, opioids or amphetamines or any sure. of that stuff. Sure. It's not, I read very early on, uh, like I only saw the negative in it. Yeah. I saw nothing that's going to expand anything. And I actually do have also a very kind of a critical view on weed, like mm-hmm. that it's it's not something to be played with. I think there's a lot of bypassing related to it. That's yeah. only medicine that's going to cure this. And that is dangerous because if you really look into the papers, it does mess up with your short-term memory and your ability to memorize things long-term. Yes. It does influence a growing child, the mm. development of the brain. Yeah. Yeah. So there is disrupted neurodevelopment. There is like adverse reactions to it. Even if it is not addictive, people getting quite depressed and paranoid and mm-hmm. can get stuff done. And to me, that's not like my choice of tool. Yeah. And so for me, the more interesting thing in terms of mystical experience was the connection of traditions from animism okay because i'm from finland and finland is not really like in terms of christianity that's of course there but we are very animistic sure we're connected to nature also estonians are very connected to nature so this animism part was i always felt connection to nature Mm. very deeply and it's also in my biohacking today Mm. this nature connection it's not about molecules and pills it's Mm. about nature connection and like mushrooms that grow in the forest, not the magic ones, but medicinal ones. I want to jump on that, this idea about nature, that we speak of it, not you at this moment necessarily, but it's oftentimes spoken of as being something different than ourselves. And to me, the realization of being an aspect of nature has helped me. I have a lot of connection with nature in Thailand. I live in the mountain rainforest. I do wild animal rescue and conservation work, all of that. And what is, I get there are two points I'm making. I'll just make the point I'm going to about nature is that I think our brain is naturally psychedelic, meaning that the capacity for broad spectrums of consciousness states is innate to the brain. I don't think the compounds cause the experience. I think the compounds enable an innate process. And that innateness is so attractive because it's inborn. And that's why I think that, for one thing, there is no psychedelic, single psychedelic state. There are, there's such a broad spectrum of subjective experiences that we broadly call psychedelic. Even if you do the same compound two days in a row, the experience is only generally similar, is very different. And the same thing with the mystical state. The mystical states are almost innumerable, and it seems to me the psychedelic states are almost innumerable, and yet we talk about them as if they exist as like water in that cup, that it's a thing. Where I'm driving my perspective, my belief system, and also the technology that I work with, is I believe that there are a great number of psychoactive agents, but that any of the agents don't really cause the experience. They tap into an ability. It's like learning how to walk. We have an innate 
driven biological force that given some opportunity, we begin it and we walk. It's not as though it's something foreign that we bring into ourselves. We're made to be able to walk. And I think our brains are made to transit through very wide spectrums of consciousness. I feel not only with psychedelic compounds, but also even with the light sound things that I work with, or breath work, or sensory deprivation, that these are all enabling agents, but they're not the cause. I, I think the cause is innate. I think, we're, I think we're made biologically to be able to access these things. So I'm wondering what you think. I don't think the agents are the cause of the endpoint action. I think that they either excite or activate innate capacities. That's what I think. In my late 20s, when I had ayahuasca, like after that experience, I definitely was thinking that it, it's the brew that causes like this, opens up these doors, yes. perception, like Aldous Huxley called them. Sure. But for me, later in life, I've experimented with dedicated daily meditation, breadwork sure. practice. Sure. That quite late, actually, in 2021, caused one event where it was not while doing it. It mm -hmm. was outside of that, but I attribute okay. the fact that I was doing it every single day for yeah. three hours. That's a lot of practice. Yeah, that was very deep. I really needed it at that time because of a loss of a long, long friend and just the hopelessness of what was going on. Wow. But that was the motivation that led me there. But there's one experience in between that practice where I would try to go to sleep and I noticed something is now happening. Okay. And I tried to calm down by breath for meditation. I couldn't do it. I had an important meeting in the morning. It was wow. like midnight. I want to go to sleep. Sure. And I was like, okay, should I call someone? There's, am I getting a panic attack here? Mm -hmm. But then I sit down and I start observing what is happening. And then I was like, this is exactly the same stuff I experienced in the Amazon. Whoa, really? Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, this is DMT and yep. it's produced by my brain. Mm. And then I just, because I realized what it is, I'm having a mystical experience mm -hmm. now without an agent that... Actually, I, the agency was probably the breath work, but let's skip that. Very possible. Yeah. So what I did then was I just relaxed into it and uh -huh. just focused on the present moment, what it can teach me and the visions that sure. came and all of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was a full-blown trip the whole night. Okay. I was in a trance state. And I would say after that experience, everything shifted and it gave for me a new meaning for some of the mystical text and concepts that I've read, mm -hmm. for example, Kundalini awakening. Sure. I, I felt maybe that's what I experienced. Maybe. Some people describe religious experience. Maybe that's what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. Some people describe accessing the state that is between death and rebirth. I felt that's maybe it. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of uh, the thinking mind tries to catch up. Yeah, what's like happening. We depending on what our earlier experience is, we tend to attribute it. Yeah, of course, in different ways. And I think when people have this experience out of the blue, which I now know is possible, of course, that they might think it was Jesus, or they might think it mm -hmm. was Krishna, or they might think it was this or that, depending yeah. on their early experience. Sure. And if you live in an animistic world, maybe it was the plant spirits or it was the animal spirits yep. or yep. the totem. This is the, the point of culture, that the culture colors our interpretations of yes. things. So I think we are all describing 
indirectly the same thing, yep. but we need to describe things in symbols because we can yep. describe it directly. So we attribute it to of different concepts. Yep. And so now I have deep appreciation yep. for uh, other forms of ecstasy. I'm not representative. I'm an individual, but I've in what I'll call to call it something meditative practices because I've practiced a number of different traditions sincerely. And I've had quite a rich psychedelic range of experiences. The transcendent, I'm using words, transcendent experiences from the meditative techniques have been substantially more attractive to me than fucking great. Yeah. There's some kind of genuineness, and maybe that's only in my head, but there's some kind of genuineness in it that is not so easily accessed by me with compounds. Indeed, and I would say at this age, I'm more and more intrigued to explore dedicated practice and see yeah. where it leads. For example, the next Biohacker Summit in Amsterdam, 14 or 15 of October, yeah. which theme is expanding consciousness, where you are going to be speaking, and which is exploring consciousness expansion from all the different modalities that humans right. have used, not just compounds. Of course. And what I'm very intrigued about is this 16th generation samurai who's coming there. Yeah. And I grew up, in addition to listening to Terence McKenna, I grew up watching Oriental movies, like Chinese and Japanese mm -hmm. martial arts movies. Mm -hmm. I learned Aikido and Tai Chi and Yudo and these kind of mm -hmm. arts. I was very much into sticks and swords and tubokens and different weapons and like wushu and acrobatic stuff, kind of ninja things. But the philosophy always intrigued mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. of the body and the mind connection, that the body and the mind is one. Sure. And the deep practice that is required to be able to, in every single moment, accept death and also be fully present. Like yeah. You're living at the fullest, yeah. ready to die any second, and realizing that everything is temporary. For sure. Fluid and For sure. It's like, how do you respond to it? Do what in, again, I'll be generalized, in our Western cultures, have you detected anything that resonates in the same way as what you've just described? In popular culture? It's a broad question. Answer as you like. We're talking. You're being truthful. I'm being truthful. I'm just also curious. As I get to know you a bit more, I'm interested in your thoughts. You're interested in me. It's all good. But to me, this is the magnetism that a number of the Eastern or Asian cultures, in different forms and shapes, they represent long-time traditions that seem to have genuinely deep and profound quality of awareness, that there's something there. I would say I feel it's more mature and deeper. If I take the samurai philosophy, yeah. maybe the Western counterpart would be a stoic philosophy. Okay. But the samurai stuff, to my understanding, is maybe even older. Yeah. So there is something about virtues and building character and yeah. honor, and yeah. accepting that life is suffering, but work through it, don't employ yeah. it. And Western philosophers have taken, and I really appreciate Western philosophy. Like I did read a lot of, and I would consider also Carl Jung more of a philosopher. I would consider Freud more of a philosopher uh -huh. than, let's say, uh, a scientist. Sure. 
they invented a lot of words to describe things. Mm -hmm. Just like, uh, also the German philosophers like Heidegger and Hegel mm -hmm. and Wittgenstein. I, I've been reading this. I was yeah. very interested in philosophy in school, and I would say I consider myself also more of a philosophist mm -hmm. than, mm -hmm. let's say, a technologist. Sure. Although that's what yeah. people see, and I think there is. I'm just reflecting on the fact that you went seeking the answers in these mm -hmm. ancient cultures, and I would say that's where I go also. And it's very interesting how interested we are, like something that is really far from what, where we come from. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's also what's happening if you go to Japan, they're super interested in, in our culture. Very much. Like the Japanese, they love Finland. Yeah. For them, that represents like some kind of heaven. Yeah, it's a super cool. Yeah, there's a wonderful connection. So that's why we do organize. Because uh, you have Tokyo in your future. Yeah, October yeah. 2024, we plan to do a biker summit in Tokyo. And that's yeah. like every Western person I'm told that we got to do it. They're like, wow. I don't get a reaction like that if I would say we can organize in Amsterdam or London or let's say somewhere in the US. They would be like, okay. But if I say it's Tokyo, they're like, wow. There's some. I tried to convince you a couple of years ago to do Chiang Mai, but I'll pass on that one. I'll forgive you for that. I have given a biking talk in Chiang Mai. Uh -huh. It's a wonderful place. Yeah. So, what I want to dive into from please setting the stage, so to say, is into like how to induce the states with modern technology. Got it. Because, because here we are. We have done as humans practice different techniques from mm -hmm. let's say breathwork or drumming, rhythmic movement to induce certain brain states. There's brain waves, and now we have technologies to do it through sound. Okay. Some, some call it binaural beats. You're hitting it right on the head. It's, it's an easy answer from my point of view. And let's use the drum. The voice is our first instrument as humans. But beyond that, percussion hitting something. You could have hit any log, but the idea of creating a drum is an example of technological instrumentation, an instrument that allows something to happen that you sense, but you can't express without the instrument. There was no saxophone music before the saxophone instrument. First language, you mentioned it uh, a while ago. Uh, I have uh, a concept that there is a primal or very first language, that when things are growing together, there's proximity. If there's proximity, there's got to be interaction. If there's interaction, there must be interrelationship. If there's relationship, there must be communication. If there's communication, you got to have a language. So what's the very first language? And my concept is that it's a combination of two things, mechanical vibration and electromagnetic radiation. Mechanical vibration requires a medium. Radiation doesn't. So I think mechanical vibration, obviously sound, is mechanical vibration and electromagnetic radiation, light. And because of the material nature of mechanical vibration, we've been more easily able as a human species to make instruments to express different types of mechanical vibration, stringed, reed, flute, uh, these things. Right now, I feel that we're beginning to be able to manipulate light with the complexity and expressiveness that we have been historically manipulating sound because of emerging technology. Okay. I think we can now have instruments that we can interact with design and expand that 
will do with light. Our brain is hugely disposed towards vision more than anything else. And it, it follows the principle that I believe that music is not the sound that you hear. That's not music. Music is the feeling you get when you hear that sound. The sound itself is a very abstract physical signaling. It's just pitch and rhythm and tones and so on. But when that hits the brain, the brain has some capacity to generate from this abstraction experience, feeling states. You don't have to be intelligent to enjoy or make music. And here is just a bunch of physical signals and you feel joy, you feel sadness, you feel all these things and you want to move your body because of the way the brain takes the sound signals and turns it into experience. Right now, we're getting closer so that the light, like in the neurovisor, the light, okay, colors and geometrics, but that really isn't the experience. It's the feeling that you get when you see them. It's just, it's the feeling that you get when you hear our light instrumentation right now is more or less, I would compare it to the early sound synthesizers. For the listeners who are not aware, Neurovisor is this device mm. that has these lights that blink at different frequencies and behind closed eyelids you see different patterns and geometries and all of that. There's none of the geometries or patterns exist in the light itself. It's what no. the brain is interpreting. Yeah. So you're generating everyone has slightly different experience, mm -hmm. different visionary state. Now, sound has been used to induce these states. And there's something about the rhythm of the shaman's drum, which is also in techno music, yeah. like the certain beat, That's, the signaling yeah. progress that is yeah. always continuing. Yeah. It's almost like a heartbeat, almost like operating on the same frequencies. So can you describe how then the brain is like, why is the brain synchronizing into it? Like, why do we see changes in brainwave patterns that seem that it's yeah. like dancing with it? It's almost like it's singing along. I won't pretend to know the brain that well. Nobody really knows the brain that well, but we know a lot more about it. To me, well, let's go, go to that reference of more of the music, uh, not the light, although it's also true of the light, that... Music is an example of brain language. The brain knows how to make it. The brain enjoys making it. The brain enjoys experiencing it. It's an insight into a way of knowing without thinking. It's a precognitive kind of intelligence. It's not a neocortex world of applied symbolism. It is what it is. The sound of a G7 chord moves you in a particular way, in the same way that when you see cobalt blue, it moves you in a certain way. Uh, it is at the level of first language. I say second language is movement, and third language is cognition and ideation. So at a most fundamental level, we are, why do we go in awe at a particular sunset? We just haven't had the tools to work with visual experience, although all the mystics talk about the light and so on, we just haven't had the instrumentation. There has been sun gazing or something. Okay, yeah, we had sunlight, moonlight, firelight. Fire to me is intriguing. Uh, out uh, at our friend's house a couple nights ago, we had a, a, a party all night and a big bonfire. And uh, to me, what is fascinating about fire with, with natural fuel, firelight, 
flickers in and around central alpha. It's the very first mind machine, which is why gazing into a fire is provocative because mid-alpha, alpha 10 hertz is the control freak of the brain. It allows focus without distraction. The very first mind machine in caves in Neolithic times or whatever, you would just stare, not because you're bored, but because there's some kind of magnetic qualitative inducement going on that it moves. And then once you're in alpha enough for a period of time, then the drift can go left or right up into excited states or more reflective states, theta states. We are nature. And isn't it an amazing coincidence that fire should flicker at the 10 hertz rate that is the dominant control frequency in the brain for order? No, it's because we co-evolved. It's a co-evolution that the light is the radiation of the experience. And then when you look at the serotonergic hallucinogens, the typical LSD and so on, one of the things that it does in the brain is it suppresses alpha. Alpha is suppressed. Why? Because then the brain is free to interact in ways that normally alpha doesn't permit. Hmm. So alpha, like in Vipassana meditations, the beginning of Vipassana-style mindfulness, so on, is it's a top-down control process. And as you mature through it, then it becomes a bottom-up sensory experience uh, in the present moment. Right now, I'll come back to this, that we understand enough with the emerging technology that we're at the edge of being able to create the yin-yang combination of sound and light. And my prediction is that the meaningfulness of it, the way that it will move consciousness so quickly and so fast beyond ideation, thinking, and symbolism is because it is so rooted. And we just haven't had the technology to manipulate light because it's radiation. But we've been able to manipulate mechanical vibration, but we're catching up. I think what took 30 years in musical synthesizers from the Moog until now, we can get there in light in three years. I think it, it's a break open opportunity for helping bridge in the same way that the shaman's drum or the Tibetan big trumpets and all the things that have facilitated us. Because the, the trumpet is technology. The guitar is technology. It's all technology. Now, visually enhancing, light enhancing technology is going to catch up. And I think that we're going to be very happy. We don't have to be technophobes. For people that are interested in compounds or not interested or want to meditate or don't want to meditate, uh, I don't think it's cheating. A shaman's drum is not cheating. It's enabling. So I'm very much believing in what I'll call biophilic technologies, biophilia, uh, life-loving technologies, not uh, a, a phobic destructive technology of radiation and all the nasty shit that happens. But I believe that we have a, an ability to create biophilic technologies that will act as biophysical psychoactive agents and that they will be cooperative with innate experiences, that they'll fit perfectly and beautifully with sensory deprivation or pranayamas or microdosing a compound or anything like that. I think we have an advantage that we're technically enabled now and this technical ability is going to increase radically in the next few years.
So let me give like my take on the NeuroVisor. Sure, thank you. So one of the things that I find interesting about it is that first and foremost, it's 11 minutes to do get into states often with breath work or yeah. meditation like I did diligently requires three hours. I got it. Mm -hmm. So it's faster. The second thing is I've shown it to people who would say, I can't meditate. Like That's I right. can't sit still. Yeah. You give it to an ADHD person. It's very hard. Yes. You give them neurovisor, they can help it. It's the first time they would come out of it and they would say, had a meditative or visionary mm -hmm. experience mm -hmm. because it really forces you with it. Like it takes you. It's very powerful in that sense. Music can also take you on place, yes. but somehow the light is more powerful. It's much more direct. Yep. Like much more, yep. it's like a psychedelic in a sense. It is psychedelic. The, in my opinion, it is a psychedelic. It's a biophysical psychedelic. It may not be a biochemical, but because the brain, it, the, my opinion, the brain itself is psychedelically enabled. And it doesn't matter. The agency is secondary to the capacity that we have a capacity, our brain can do this. Of course, it can go off wheels, it can become pathological, but just because a state is uncommon doesn't make it abnormal. So there are all of these normative, it's like Graf, he said, okay, we have sane, we have insane. He says, this is, we need another one. So he said, sane, unsane, and insane. Insane is the nasty shit. Unsane is just a variation on sanity. And the idea that, we can provoke it through a bottom-up sensory stimulation should not really be surprising. Maybe we just don't have the experience with it, but once you taste it, it's suddenly, for me, it both feels familiar and foreign at the same time. This is weird dichotomy. And the, I won't go technical because I love the technical, but what's not understood is that with the visor, there are three simultaneous levels of signaling going on. There's macro patterns, meso pulses, and micro flickering. So it's addressing the three different levels of the nervous system simultaneously. And why do I choose 11 minutes? Because neurologically, the average human can maintain attention without tension for around 10, 12 minutes. That's why I do 11 minutes. You can piggyback one more time again to around 20 minutes because you have enough local neurotransmitters. So if you want to piggyback, that's why TED Talks, even the summer, you know, the conferences and things, that 20-minute time, whether it's transcendental meditation or the old halo, which is now non-existent, this 20-minute thing comes up a lot. So my approach is I try to achieve the most while doing the least. I don't want to push a person to maximum tolerance. I want to get them to minimum threshold and then let the brain take over. Right. So that's my goal is to be economical and not stressful. Another thing that I find interesting about the neurovisor is that unlike the molecular ways mm -hmm. to induce certain states, the likelihood of side effects is less oh, because it's less. more targeted. Yeah. It's not it, like you take mushrooms, you have all kinds of weird sensations, the gut and all that like, sure. because you have receptors all over the body, but yeah. they are affecting now the brain directly. It's just different electrostimulation of the brain. Then the other thing what I find interesting is that because of this mechanism of delivering this experience and these states, that it's not so dogmatized. 
like substances, yeah. not controlled substances. You can't control light. You, you can't pass a law like this frequency is not allowed. Like <laughs> that's the devil frequency. <laughs> yeah, don't use the devil frequency. It's prohibited. It makes people turn down their weapons and yeah. surrender. Yeah. We don't want that. So, what? Unlike the hippie movement, yes. which was fueled by LSD, and I guess the government at the time became a bit afraid. That, I'm very afraid, I'd that, say. That yeah. it's going against their policy and people didn't take the mm. top-down control hierarchies anymore and the dominator culture. Yeah. But they started to, Timothy Leary said, think for themselves. Yes. And with this light, it's accessible to everyone and everywhere and it can be brought into therapy or medical setting or recreational setting without complex laws there's, there's really no i guess there are cultures that do prohibit music but we'll put that that extremism aside yes it's visual music if you want to work an analogy and the capacity to manipulate again i won't go technical to waste time right now but it's so rapidly advancing and i study musical instrumentation to see how it can be applied what we have right now induces neuroplastic change, it's undeniable. But what we have right now with the Neurovisor experience, I would say conservatively represents maybe 15, 20% of what it'll be in a couple of years. So first and foremost, this is accessible. It is portable. Yeah. It is something that works rapidly. Yeah. It is immediate onset. You don't need to wait hours for it. No, turn it on, turn it off. Exactly. Yep. It's a perfect businessman's break. You can always take like a 15-minute coffee break. It's interesting yep. that coffee break and cigarette or tobacco break used to be in the law. Yes. So now right. we can have a neurowiser break. <laughs> or <laughs> Go for it. Because w what I've noticed working is that if I feel tired and unfocused, yep. I take a session and I'm back in business. So yep. it's like a reset. It's almost like a power nap. Yep. And yep. it really helps me to reorient into what I'm doing. So I find it very useful. I'm going to toss one more thing in that I think is a big positive is now that we're moving out of the prototype phase and going into production and re refining the applications, the price is going to drop dramatically so that it'll be buy some hardware and then purchase into whatever content that you want. Yeah. So it's becoming rapidly accessible. Exponential yeah. technology is progress of a lot of these things will make it easier to access these states. Now, what I also find interesting is that you just don't leave it there, that this is now the one and all solution, but that there is also protocols that you develop yes. yeah, that yeah. where it's combined with other techniques. Yeah. Could be with like breath work, could yeah. be with meditation, could be with certain substances, not necessarily powerful substances, but maybe you could have like just something like a nootropic cocktail, something yes. mild yes, yes. that really helps the brain to process all of that. Yeah. At your October Amsterdam, we're launching another collection, drug-free microdosing. I have full 15 different session designs, dose day, trans day, norm day, and you can plug in whatever you want, fatamin, you want stamens, you want microdosing, whatever protocols, and you can use it without any compounds, and it is radically attractive and effective. 
or if you want to do some compound microdosing and stack, here you're stacking a compound with light and sound. So the stacking principle doesn't have to stay biochemical. You can stack biochemical with biophysical. And I'm very proud and happy that we're going to launch that at your event. That's the right place for these kind of e-psychedelics, in yeah. a sense, like yeah. electronic psychedelics. Yes. And I find it, so we have pharmaceuticals, we have nutraceuticals, yeah. and now we have electroceuticals. That would be fair. Or lightceuticals. Or, yeah, we will find language, but the whole thing is when something is newly evolved, then there's seeking language to catch it. And I'm really hoping and watching and waiting and trying my best to create a more normative response to what's called altered states or non-ordinary states. We have to go, we go crazy. If you define non-ordinary, some people would say it's like a crazy thing. We do it every circadian cycle, nighttime dreaming or hypnagogic states. These are very illogical wildly expressive states. If we don't go crazy a little bit on a very regular basis, it will create insanity of the negative kind. We need to let go and loosen up. We need that. Cultures automatically have that, whether it's Mardi Gras or Carnival or New Year's or Halloween. We know that every once in a while, you got to let it go. There you go. Catnip for cats and bamboo for the bandas. Thank you. I'm a believer in what? I'm a believer in trying our best. I'm a believer in that. And I'm a believer in, as we learn, share the learning. One of the things I want, I, I actually, I need in my enterprise is I need more like-minded inventors and explorers and artists. I don't want to do this by myself. That sucks. I want to do it with. I want to spread the joy and share the joy of the conscious, transformative, entertainment, healing experience. And also one of the things that I'm moving aggressively towards, assertively towards, is algorithmic AI, because I, I want us to have the ability to see the music that we love. And we will always have creative artists, but I would love the ability to jump onto Spotify, play the tune that you're in the mood for, and have an algorithmic simultaneous process. It's not it's like the screensaver. The idea is not, is not to use light to express what the music is saying. There's the explicit and then the implicit. Let, let's say I'm a musician, wish I was. I'm a musician and I create this music. And let's say that you're a dance choreographer and you have a, a dancing troupe. I say, Timo, here's my creation. I want you to see how you add dimensionality to it with dance. I want a dimension of feeling of an implicit messaging, because here's the explicit sound. But when, as I say, music is not the sound you hear, it's the feeling you have when you hear the sound. Can you show me somatically in your troupe? Can you add dimensionality to my music with your dance? It's going to be one thing. When I'm watching the dancers, I'm hearing the music. They're not separate, but they're going to show me things hidden in the music that I'm feeling but not really hearing. Wow. So I, that's why I call what I do with light to the sound experience, not just mimic. 
Let's talk about the design of that sure. experience. So okay. one thing that you have told me in the context of the fact that there is quite a lot of devices on the market and have existed for a long time sure. for flickering light yes. in front of your eyes. Got it. So a lot of that is random. Like it's just like experimental. You mentioned that what NeuroVisor is inducing is the macro and like there was like these different- Macro, meso, micro, yeah. These different layers. Mm -hmm. Like, what is the pros? How did you discover different programs? Because on the app, there is like ways to induce, of course, I would imagine like the different brain states or the like different alpha, beta, gamma, whatever waves, sure. those are easy because it's they're- Dumbass easy, actually. That's super easy. So we just try to get the same frequency as what is yeah. seen in the brain on those states. But what about things that would influence creativity or sure. focus or divine like flight? So how did you- How do I do that? How shit? did you do that? <laughs> okay. Why is it not random? Okay. There are generally, okay. I, I was working with the early tech in the 80s, brain entrainment. The, it was discovered in the 1930s, just after the early brainwave stuff that you have this thing called the frequency following response, that the brain given a stimulus if it's repeated and predictable, that usually if it's a clean signal, it takes about six to eight minutes before the brain actually picks it up and starts to do it. The first period is called superimposition, where you're f like you're forcing the person to dance in a certain way. That's a top-down process neurologically, and what it does is it works to help reinforce existing patterns. The thing that motivated me was a collection of things, but it's the attentional state of neuroplastic change. That neuroplastic methodologies, like pain and pleasure, what do they have in common? They focus your attention. That focal attention is the opposite of brain entrainment because when the signal repeats, then the predictable nature of the brain knows what's coming and it withdraws attention. That's why it's a passive experience the signal will just make the brain behave in a certain way. I started off with trying to better understand cybernetics, psychedelic information theory, systems theory, all these things of how to communicate information for positive neuroplastic change. That's my game. That's what I want. Right now, generally on the market, without criticism, you have, other than what I'm doing, you have these two categories of flickering light devices and processes. One, is conventional brain entrainment. It's been around for 45 years. It hasn't changed one iota. Maybe the technology is a little bit better. Then you have those that are just generating random signals, and that's a different experience. The, 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 the device can create random light signaling, and they say, just play, play any music that you want. So what happens is the brain, because the brain always looks for signal and noise. The brain tries to make sense out of nonsense. That's what's going on all the time. When the signaling is randomized persistently and it's not in any way related to the music, what happens uh, neurologically is called dissociation. It's a little bit like ketamine or nitrous. The brain can't find a signal. There's nothing predictable. There's nothing to follow. There's no story here. It creates a suspended state. And a person kind of floats in this suspended state, which is quite relieving if you've never spent time there, if you're really cognitive all the time. However, the negative sense is that if you do it repeatedly over time, 
then the brain will go into a strong inhibitory, and what'll happen is you get what's called a gray out or a washout, where now you don't see any colors, it's all grays, because the brain is now having to protect itself from a wild, non-specific, random stimulation. So in short bursts, it can be quite pleasant because it pulls you, neurologically, it is similar, as I understand it, it is similar to the disassociation of ketamine or nitrous. The me and my experience pull apart, and that's okay for short periods. There is a application service called Brain.fm, and yep. Brain.fm is like this binaural beats thing. Yeah. But their whole thing is that it's AI-generated uh -huh. in that way that it's not pre-recorded. The problem with a lot of these pre-recorded uh -huh. binaural beat stuff is supposedly the fact that, like in their description, the brain starts to expect. It, it knows what's going to happen. Next. Oh, it, when, like you, when you hear it, second. you hear it the first time, yeah. like some beautiful music, it's awesome. But once you listen to it many times, you you, you just know your brain knows what's yes. going to come yeah. next. So it's it sounds similar, but it's different. It's a bit fractal. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's yeah. it, like it, it it puts you in a pretty interesting focused state, mm -hmm. and that's the the whole. If it's idea. if it's not too competitive. If it's more background, it can do that. If it's foreground, then it'll disassociate. There, there won't be the ability to focus. Uh, so those systems, if you use it more ambient, yeah, uh, it's an ambient. Uh, as an ambience, then it creates, it's, it's similar to white noise. Uh, it, it creates a, a filter that dissociates you from other sounds of what's going on. Is it like a reverse sound or? A there are different ways to characterize it, but the point is it's understandable. So you've got these two categories, brain entrainment and random dissociation. So I've tried to craft the concept with a term, I call it brain engagement. You engage the brain in a series of command demand processes. So it's a kind of brain exercise towards a certain vector, a certain theme. Other than the macro, meso, micro, which is too detailed right now, but it's a kind of neurological storytelling. So there's a hello, here I am, and then suddenly there's, depending on the session, there's significant brain destabilization. I scramble the eggs because the brain, I want the brain to have an appetite for the signal because when you start the session, you may not be hungry for the change. Your brain is in a certain mode. So I say, oh, hi, Tamo, how are you doing, man? And I slap you around a little bit. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? Pardon me. And I say, I'm just trying to get your, you got my attention. Okay, boom. So I do different degrees of destabilization. There's technical ways of doing it. Then I drop in the, the primary signal vector. Okay, here we go. And a little bit of reward. And once you think, oh, the brain's got it, then I slap it to the side with some conflict, that I stress it. Uh, and then after the stressing, reward having tolerated the stress. It's a very methodological-based composition technique. I see. Now it explains my experience with it, because I noticed that there is moments where it's quite intense, yep. and then quite pleasant, then yep. quite intense, quite yep. pleasant. So yep. it's intentionally built that way. Correct. So you get enough. Yeah, that, that, that you, you get some challenge and then some reward, some challenge, and it moves the brain progressively into a probability state. There's no way of making the brain do something unless you're overbearing and, and punishing. Uh, but I can say that there is a generous probability state that may last a short time, 
Working with generating states and then with repetition and learning over time, the state can translate to trait. For states, you need the stimulation present. For traits, you don't need the stimulation because it's brain generated. And also what I have built, there's so many other elements in it. When people ask me, oh, do you use binaural beats? Please don't say that word to me. It is so primitive. We'll talk more about that maybe. But the idea that's driving it has a rational defensible sequence that why you can get where you're going. If we did a movie script together, doesn't matter what it is. And there are some characters in the movie. What is the simplest way of learning more about a particular character? What would we write into the script? We would create some conflict because you know the person, the character as they are, and you want to learn more about them. So you put them in a, con a conflicted circumstance. Then you see things about them that you wouldn't ordinarily see. In the designs, I purposely, depending on the, the goal of the session, because some sessions are overtly training you to let go and sedate. Some are motivating you to climb a little bit and stretch out. Some are really shooting you up to the sky to see if you can fly. That's what I call the vector, technically, the theme. But the amount, like you have exercise and kettlebells and the whole thing, you calculate or calibrate the sequence of the exercise to create certain outcomes. Full on is crazy. Not enough, no result. It's methodological. And the different sessions have that. And also, I have elements in there that if you're running it off Wi-Fi, meaning you're connected to my server in the sky, there are certain elements in the session that are randomized. They will never repeat the same. I see. So you don't get that bored. No, just as soon as your brain says, oh, I know what this session is. Wait a minute. What was that? The mix of flow and friction. That's the designs have that quality. There's no flow without friction. Right? That prediction and surprise. Right. Flow state is like basically where you are at the peak of your ability, but it doesn't become frustrating. But no, it's not too boring either. But you have to have a frictional state. There has to be some transition that without some friction, challenge. there's no flow. Some challenge. There's got to be. That's why for flow, that magic 2-3% thing, that's a lot of what I play with. To get, whether it doesn't matter what the method is, to get motivated neuroplastic change, you need three things in the method, and there's a fourth thing that is the secret sauce. First thing is you need to have sustained attention. Without attention, sorry, there's no motivation for change. So that's when Qigong, biofig, everything, bringing your attention to something is empowering that process. That is the commonality of pain and pleasure. I say it repeated, I'll give the same stupid analogy. If I had a knife and I jammed it into your left knee right now, that'd be very painful. And if somehow you had an orgasm in your left knee somehow, what is common between those? Your attention goes to your left knee. You got my attention. There you go. The second thing you need is what's called marginal demand. That's that two or three percent. That's why in the neurovisor sessions, depending on the session, there is more or less neuroplastic demand. So the marginal attention combined with marginal demand are the two things that have to have the third for efficiency. The third is a little bit harder to explain. It's the, the belief, the buy-in, the open-mindedness to experience it. It's a, kind of a psycho-emotional state. 
You have to have those three things in any neuroplastic method. I don't care what the thing is, sensory enrichment, whatever. Then the fourth thing, the magic, the secret sauce, is a very complex neurohormonal state. If you could add that state to those three, all those are exponentially better. And that fourth secret sauce is this thing we call enjoy. Enjoyment, that feeling of, wow, yes, that potentiates the other three. That is the theoretical template that I have used with the Neurovisor that is not my creation or invention. It is standard neurology in terms of neuroplastic generating methods. That's profound. I believe that Western medicine and science has not been able to treat certain conditions or induce certain states because it's quite narrow-minded in terms of neuroplasticity. If you take, for example, different brain states, ADHD, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you take ADD, OCD, Mm -hmm. you take different personal disorders, narcissism, whatnot, anxiety, different disorders, Mm -hmm. the talk therapy, which is mainly the thing, it's a combination of talk therapy and some kind of like SSRI. Yes. Or something that like stabilizes in their mind Mm -hmm. so that the person at least doesn't hurt themselves. Yeah. So that the talk therapy can happen. It's like the reason why they see that some things are untreatable is because they're not deploying neuroplasticity. They don't understand how to change the brain over time, why it's so hard to change some conditions. Yeah. And I believe if we connect the Eastern philosophies and techniques Mm -hmm. and modern technology like neurovisor and western understanding Mm -hmm. of psychotherapy and analysis and also the different cognitive behavior or whatever in why why, for example art therapy or music therapy is sometimes more effective than just cognitively trying to change something is is because there's probably induction of these kind of states. Well, another, it's a little simplistic, it's true, but it's not as simple as this, but it's true to say that neurologically we have top-down processes and bottom-up processes. And if you look at the entropic brain or the anarchic brain, Carhart-Harris and Frist and those people, they believe and recognize that there is a primitive bottom-up that was then modernized with the neocortex top-down. Something like brain entrainment neurologically, something like guided imagery, something like talk therapy, these are all neurologically top-down processes. What's a bottom-up process? A bottom-up process is the direct sensory experience of information in the moment. It's just happening. The bottom-up processes only know the present moment. That might sound really attractive, but it's incomplete. The top-down neurological processes harvest this information and put it into a library that we'll call past experience and then projects it forward to future expectation. So it's a predictive engine on top of the felt experience. That's right. That's exactly what it is. And when you realize that the top-down process has no connection with the present moment in and of itself, It lives in the past and attempts to predict the future. And if its prediction is right, it only knows it from the bottom-up validation. The bottom-up may invalidate. It can be a prediction error. Oh, what a surprise. I'll write a paper on this sometime because I'm convinced the earliest 
neuroplastic generation experience in the human psyche is this thing we call humor. The benign violation of expectation. Surprise, where you thought it was going, it hits a right hand or a left hand turn, you get this thing called laughter. I do my best to work predominantly with bottom-up experience. I work and in the neuroplastic attempt to bring the person into the present moment. I think however you get to the present moment, that is the therapeutic goal. I think the, the truth of the present moment is unbiased. Top-down has a confirmation bias. It wants its view of reality to be correct. And that's Friston's work with this active inference and so on, which is another technical area. Working with information that is meant to help a person kind of be attentionally grabbed and surprised into the present moment, I think has a tremendous, not only therapeutic, but consciousness potential. I guess what trauma is like, where the prediction engine is constantly wrong. Yeah, it pretends that the past is the present. Yeah, it's basically reliving and then reacting to the moment, catastrophizing. Two massive names in our Western tradition, Freud and Pavlov, both shared, because actually Freud was biological in his premise. They both share the same opinion, that the organism has a natural capacity at self-resolution when it comes to conflict or trauma and healing at, at a level. And that when this process is obstructed by a kind of stickness or blockage of natural channels, and I don't mean energetically, I don't even know what those channels are, they're probably psychological and biological. They say that the healing is not to fix the problem, but to open up the natural channels of resolution again. That's the game. And Carhart Harris has his primary consciousness and secondary consciousness, primary being the sensory bottom up and secondary being the common translated symbolic top down. Freud expressed it differently. The primitive, he called the id, and the evolved, he called the ego. It's the same model. Actually, Carhart Harris appears to have borrowed from Freud even the terms of primary and secondary in his model. I struggled for a long while to try to understand what the hell is information? What do you mean when you use the word information? I got saved to my satisfaction by Gregory Bateson, now past, a brilliant multi-everything anthropologist. He gave the solution to me in two bumper stickers that I follow right now, even in my development of what I do manually and what I'm hoping for algorithmically follows his principle. He said, information is news of change. When something is not changing, the information load drops. When it changes, there's suddenly the generation of information. So information is news of change. Then the second one is information is a difference that makes a difference. So not every change is actually radically informative. And that's where the system and complexity can figure these things out. I believe that in signaling, the explicit signal, whether it's the sound or the light flash, that's explicit. I think that there is tons of, this is gonna sound strange, non-existent, existent information. And I'll give you this analogy. I'm gonna do an air drawing right now of two mountains, right? Two mountain peaks. 
They exist. That's explicit. But there's something there that isn't there. Implicitly, it's there. So what's there that's not there? The valley. The valley is nothing, but it's an implicit message from the explicit of two mountains. So I think all the signals that we consciously experience, whether it's sound or light, and probably beyond that, these are the explicit signals that the implicit messaging, the experience quality, comes from sensing money. Maybe like you described earlier without the details where you had a certain experience and everything you seem to read between the lines and you were describing that sustained state that you were in. I think it's because of the reading between the lines, meaning sensing the implicit messaging that is innate but hidden in the explicit signals. So I work with trying to notice what I call the delta dynamics. I look to see where the changes are because if I say to you, number five, number seven, I give you a five, I give you a seven. What's implicit? Six. Two. The difference between five and seven, or it could be six, yeah. linear and one yeah. is quantitative. But the idea is that explicitly five and seven creates two. That's the difference. That's also, by the way, this example was great. Yes. Because we both had different association yes. and interpretation of the situation. Both. So when we communicate and someone says, I hundred. I understand you 100%. Yes. It's never true. Never true. Because the implicit is always a bit different. It's subjective. If I say Paris, yes, one Boom. might think about Paris Hilton, the other one is think about their trip to the city of Paris. Of course. So there is all these associations with symbols. Yes. Now, you said first language. Yes. Terence McKenna said that the world is made out of language, which was a profound thought for me that there is certain language to it now people mix knowledge with information mm -hmm. information as in having a form it has yep. like a certain sequence it's it's codified reality in some way mm -hmm. we, we give it a certain sequence yes it's, it's it has the implicit explicit qualities of it and that's the information flow mm. of the communication we know more than we can say oh for sure and we can say more than we can write down and we know more than we think in communication, there is a lot of things that are have be, are being said and what are not being said. Mm. There's things that are being understood and misunderstood and not understood at all, <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> all the so in the end, also, when I listen to you, I'm not really listening to you. I'm having associations, yes. implicit, explicit. Yes. I think I'm hearing yes. things. So you are hearing things. The experience you're having is only indirectly related to what you're right. hearing. So it's when you put the neurovisor device, everyone sees different patterns. They see similar, but then it morphs quite quickly. So it does begin with a great deal of initial similarity. Mm. Uh, and I can show you a stack of papers this big research, mostly done in the 50s, correlating different optic frequencies with colors and geometry. That's why in psychedelic experience with substances, people describe similar yes. audiovisual, yes. so-called hallucinations or illusions. Yeah, there's a Fluver's form constants. Heinrich Kluver was doing research in the late 1920s and early 30s in the University of Chicago with photic stimulation and mescaline. And he came up with what still stands today as four different basic Templates for visual hallucination. Tunnels and funnels is one. Checkerboards 
or honeycombs is another, spirals, and radios like spider's webs. Those are the four based on the hypercolumns in the visual cortex. When you stimulate the visual cortex in any number of ways, because of the hypercolumns, one side of the hypercolumns generate color tones, the other side of the hypercolumns generate angles. Right now, when you look at me and I look at you, we have depth perception based on which hypercolumns are being predominantly stimulated because depth perception is based on the outline, the edges of things. And you'll notice in human art, for long periods of time, all the visual art was two-dimensional. Right. And then suddenly, it became three-dimensional. The technique, the understanding of perspective came in. Why did it come in then and not before? Interesting, yeah. indeed. If you, the eye is perceiving difference and optical illusions is partly the brain's prediction engine. Absolutely. Like filling in the blanks in the, in, with, without error correction. Correct. All the time. All the time. It's such a juicy topic. And when and where meaning comes in, when something is meaningful, is both a goal, a destination, and a satisfaction for me to be able to bring a person into what constitutes some kind of meaningful state that usually I call it knowing without thinking. Meaning? It's significant. There's some kind of significance to it's it. Almost like the term is me in it, meaning. Well, there's some kind of like boundary dissolution of what you're being perceiving. Something like that. I don't, I don't know because, you know, meaning uh, we assign it at an intellectual level. You can have a state that you recognize is important or a moment or something, a glance to the eye. It touches you, yeah, that there's something there. And I suspect that it's proximity to the present moment. What is very interesting about the latest AI progress is that they implemented something called novelty in it. Yeah. And the fact that they implemented novelty was actually that made this giant leap in image generation and yeah. recognition and all yeah. that. Like yeah. Most of the progress is because of implementing novelty. That's precisely one of the cardinal elements of my compositional formulation is call it conflict or call it surprise or call it novelty that I purposely play with the prediction generation confirmation bias and then throw in a joke, throw in novelty. It's interesting to me that Friston, who is massively genius in all kinds of ways, says that the brain will do everything it can to avoid surprise. And I believe that from a rationalist view. However, as I said, humor is amazing. It's an amazing cognitive process, and it's built on the delight of surprise. Even young children, you know, do some magic trick or, or whatever it is. I discredit Friston, which is absurd because he's 10 stories higher than my brain, but that I think the brain does everything it can to avoid surprise in order to be prediction accurate. However, a life that is totally predictable lacks discovery. I think that's the whole point of a surprise. When you have a prediction and you get a solid prediction error, what a surprise. The, the novelty of discovery, the novelty, I think it's learning. I think that every neuroplastic change on the smallest level is a biological hero's journey. 
Right. Your brain is expecting certain things and novelty is when it notices that its prediction is wrong. That's right. That's novelty. Interestingly, Terence McKenna described, in addition to saying that the universe is made of language, he also said that the universe is a novelty generating engine. He had a novelty theory yes. that what the universe is doing, is, instead of entropy, it's mm -hmm. striving for novelty. There is some mm -hmm. intrinsic process in it that loves to generate complexity. Maybe we can call it creativity. The creative process is not to build an edifice that is replicated solidly every time, but to have variations on the theme, to have creative discovery and novelty. It's the same also in terms of evolution theory. For evolution to happen, you have to adapt or yes. change. You have to have errors. And I see genes as a like a collective filtering mechanism of mm -hmm. adaptations, but mm -hmm. at the same time, it, it's prone to errors. Just like a cell yep. dividing is prone to copying errors. And the fact that there is these slight errors is actually mm -hmm. what creates change. I think it's one of the most important driving forces. It's probably, we're not going to get into Sheldrake and all these other elements, but I believe that as our understanding progresses in these ways, philosophically and physiologically, biologically, that we have the opportunity to craft our technology, like an AI, to craft the technology in such a way that it is enhancing to the process of consciousness, that it's not supplementing a process, it's not giving you addicted to ongoing support because you don't grow up into it. To me, this is a high-level hope I have because otherwise I feel sometimes pessimistic and I'm trying to find ways out of that. And I think what you're saying, perhaps what I'm saying, points to something. The idea of the confirmation bias, our view of reality, be careful that we don't do everything possible to resist prediction errors. That kind of concludes the thing that, yeah, the, it's not just random blinking lights. Oh, God, no. <laughs> no. But it's also not... It's not brain entrainment. It's not fully... What I would love to see is algorithmically some kind of feedback process where it's like adapting to what's happening, which is like you're now designing... Give me a little bit of time. A little bit of time, a few smart people and some resource, because this is where we're going. It's the attraction of the potential is undeniable. So light light is music for the brain and the composition of that is now is still a static journey that you designed to induce certain states, but maybe soon it is something that is adapting to what the brain is actually doing and what its like preset state is. Correct. That's wonderful. I find that very profound and important and it's gonna be interesting to follow this and definitely I'm already getting a lot of benefits of using these kind of technologies of mm -hmm. not brain entrainment, but brain engagement. Yes. And Which uh, is not coming down in brain entrainment. It just is what it is. So I'm all for engagement, and that definitely does engage me into a creative process that is helpful or a meditative practice or whatever. If yeah. you feel like you can, I, I just don't feel like doing like something like, like some simple uh, Pranayama, RB, Pasana stuff, like sure. you put this device on and it just, you just grow with it. Well, I, I like to characterize it as everybody's best friend. What we see is that the process, you could think of it as brain priming or sensory enrichment. Essentially, and this may sound like an overstatement, I don't think it is, but 
anything that you do after the neurovisor because of the hyperplastic state and then what's called a metaplastic state, everything is better because it's like a warm-up before you do the hard-on exercise that you can use it as a brain priming process. People that do neurofeedback report back to us that if they have the session first, that their client will drop into the neurofeedback process 15 to 20 minutes faster than they would normally do in an hour session. So they're saving 40% of the time because the brain has been primed into a process. When you do a session, even an 11-minute session, your brain is in what's usually called a hyperplastic state for one to two hours. Yep. Hyperplastic means it's sensitized to informational change. So it's a sensitized state. So it's in a positive state for learning new things. Yeah, I think because the brain is physical. We're not going to debate what is the mind. So the things that we know about our physical body are essentially true of the brain. Any kind of basic exercise is physically good for most people. But we don't really generate brain exercise very much. A person that works physically, they say, I don't need to exercise because I work all day. But how many times do you bend over backwards in your daily? Never. So that means if you have to bend over backwards, you can't. In many ways, we don't do brain backbends. We stay within the bowling alley of mental habits. The idea with the neurovisor is it could be it's brain exercise disguised as entertainment. It's provocative. That can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? I'm going to guide you. I'm going to push you. I'm going to reward you. I'm going to do that so that the brain starts to have a neuroadaptive response because it's getting information in the form of stimulation. It's physical. It's just straight on physical. And then whatever the mind is, this glorious experience, I don't know what it is, but it certainly has a relationship to a healthy brain. A well-functioning brain is really good for your mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the well-functioning body creates foundations for a well-functioning Let's face it. When I look at you, that's your brain. Your brain, even this is our reductionistic, silly things that we cut things into pieces. To say you have a brain and a body is stupid. Because your whole body is your brain. Yeah, it's a neural the, network. It's, your, it's, it's a unified complex system. This is the thing that's, we, maybe I said it earlier, you can't give the right answer to a wrong question. And there are so many things that don't make sense to us because of the philosophical principle that we enter with. Our axiomatic position is false. And then we try to remedy it by explanations on the false premise. And you and I both know scientifically, at least if we believe it, that we're 99.9% .9 space. Yeah, pretty much. So there's a force tension that makes it feel solid. I think it's really important to be an honest explorer of experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you very much for this. This has been profound. And okay. we are releasing also on the Bakker Summit YouTube channel your talk that you gave in... Helsinki. Oh, thank you. Which was profound on the fourth state of consciousness. <laughs> yeah. I recommend very much for people to check that one out. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward to your talk at the Barker Summit. I think that the title is The Psychedelic Brain. I'm going with that right now. That's going to be definitely something that I want to listen very carefully and see what I can learn in the end. One thing that you explained to me beautifully once was the fact that when your brain is in kind of this balanced state in this default mode network, mm -hmm. 
where profound change is possible is to induce this imbalance. Correct. Destabilize the default mode network. Exactly. So you have the stable brain and then you have this destabilized state. Mm -hmm. And that destabilization is what creates the foundations for change. It's like imagine or visualize that you're looking at the sunset in a regular state and then you're looking at the sunset when your friend just died. Correct. It looks different to you. So it's inducing this instability, which I think psychedelics also do. Of course. Which then makes you see things differently. Temporarily, but that's, that is the point. You should not be unstable for long periods of time. Short periods of time are part of health. Walking, bipedal walking, is constantly falling forward and catching yourself with the next step. That's beautiful, put. Yeah. So in a sense, that's what we need more for having also healthy brains and be able to train that, yeah. its ability to fall forward. Yeah, being comfortable with short periods of uncertainty because that's where possibility... Chaos sounds horrible, but it also means unlimited possibilities. And for some, chaos is just something we haven't recognized the pattern in. No, and we all need help. And I think that sometimes we can feel like there's a monster chasing us, that there's something we're avoiding all the time. And I suspect... I can't claim victory here, but I suspect uh, the monster that's chasing us is simply the truth. That's it. If people want to know more about the Neurovisor, can you maybe share our website? Not surprisingly, it's neurovisor.com. How do you spell it? Visor is a weird spelling. Neuro, like you imagine, and visor is V-I-Z-R, so it's a sound alike. V-I-Z-R, neurovisor.com. Wonderful. So that's where people can find more information. Yeah, and we're upgrading the website. The messaging issue is the game. Okay. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Honestly, sincerely, thank you for the time. Thank you. I, I appreciate you and what you do. Thank you, and see you on the other side. 